Hello, everyone, and welcome to Untangle, the meditation podcast from Gaim. I'm your host, Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. In today's episode, I sat down with Elisha Goldstein. Elisha is a psychologist, best-selling author of more than five books, and founder of the Center for Mindful Living in Los Angeles. In this episode, we dive into his most recent book, Uncovering Happiness, Overcoming Depression with Mindfulness and Self-Compassion. He's here to share how to have more happiness in our lives. Elisha, welcome. That was great to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you here live from the Boulder Studios, mm. which is fantastic. Um, Elisha, just so you all know, is one of my favorite instructors on the Gaia Meditation Studio app. He's he's done more than like 30 meditations. They're all amazing. And he did the Uncover Happiness course, um, which is also amazing. So I'd like to talk today about happiness. Um, it's a hot topic. It's a hot topic, right? We all want to be happy. And first First, tell me a little bit about how you got into meditation, but also why you chose happiness as a subject to explore. Okay. Well, you know, um, I got into meditation in the same for the same reason most people get into meditation, which is I was uh, working in San Francisco and during the dot-com boom, and I was working hard, but I was playing a whole lot harder, so I was really kind of diving into some very destructive habits. And so I was suffering quite a bit, and I was confused. And inevitably, I started first reading about meditation. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do it. Maybe now, actually nowadays, I feel like there's, there's, there's the meditations app, there's... are available. <laughs> meditation studios available. Exactly. So you could just kind of drop in now. Back then, it wasn't you didn't have those things. And so um, I was reading about it and seeking people out. And you know, inevitably, I left the corporate world, went back to school to study psychology. And I ran into it again because I was interested in for myself and for other people, um, helping um, us all uh, create more meaningful moments in our lives to like really find the meaning and purpose, you know, in life. And I wanted to help people create moments called I called sacred moments. And I realized in order to help people realize sacred moments or meaningful moments in their lives, they had to first be present, mm. and they had to learn how to do that. And so I reached out and studied again, and and found that. And so one of the leading programs out there um, that was working with helping people become present and also with stress reduction and variety of things like that was mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so mindfulness-based stress reduction, while I had been practicing a little meditation prior to that, really provided the structure for me to you know, dip in and learn how to actually um, create a practice, a mindfulness meditation practice. And, and it was secular, so it kind of spoke to me too. Yeah, yeah. That was my entryway really. Just winding back a little bit. So you're studying psychology at this point, And how do you come up with this idea that you want to help people create more sacred moments? I'm really curious about that. There was an emptiness there. I think while I was in San Francisco uh-huh. during that during that time and really being destructive, there were certainly ups and downs of being depressed, feeling lost, feeling lonely. You know, even I had, friend, I had a lot of friends around me. Sometimes I just would feel, you know, alone in that mm-hmm. way. Um, I was looking for connection, and I think mm-hmm. sacred moments is you know allowing is a sense of feeling connected to thing people and all things around you. It's a sense of meaning and purpose in life. As I started to really study happiness, okay. um, there I went back to kind of you know um, the way the Greeks 
uh, originally defined it, which was there was eudaimonic happiness and there was hedonic happiness. And hedonic happiness is just kind of engaging in pleasure in life. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that, although it's just not lasting. And if we're always looking for the pleasure in life, we're going to inevitably be disappointed and have a tough time with the <laughs> the difficulties that yeah, are there. Yeah. So eudaimonic happiness was more of like a sense of feeling connected, a sense of feeling meaning and purpose in life. So I realized what's more important than feeling a sense of meaning and purpose in life um, and so I wanted to cultivate that for myself and then for other people. And so that was that was where the kind of research began. Um, and it was to, I guess I felt like if you feel a, a sense of meaning and purpose and connection in life, that is a, that, that's a natural sense of resiliency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can look back years from now laying on my deathbed and look back on my life and say, wow, I really kind of was present for life and, and the, the things that I was present to really mattered. So did mindfulness-based stress reduction, when you started doing that, that helped you to be more present for moments and and then you maybe define those as sacred moments, but I guess that doesn't really matter how you define them, but in that they are, you are present for what is happening in your Every life. Every present moment is a sacred moment. Every present moment. Yeah, because they're never, it's, there's just just like a flower blooms and, and dies. Yeah. And so you look at we're, we're all in love with things that don't last very long. Butterflies sometimes live 24 hours. And so they're beautiful to us because they're precious and rare. And so our, the moments of our lives, every single moment that we're living is precious and rare. And oftentimes we don't realize that because, you know, we our brain kind of creates, uh, makes things automatic. And so we just kind of fall into routine. One of the one of the people who really influenced my my life and the way I, I think sometimes or a portion of it is this guy, Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was a, a rabbi, a philosopher. He marched with Martin Luther King. Um, and he has this really wonderful quote um, out of one of his books that said, life is routine and routine is resistance to wonder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're – and if you look at neuroscience, we're kind of – uh, crafted to make things routine so we can handle more and more difficult things, more complex things in life. And so we have to actually pause and open up to the um, the reality, almost wake up, that really moment to moment, there's no moment like another moment in our life. And so every moment is really a sacred moment if we understand it that way. And so, you know, in some ways, uncovering happiness is partly the mindfulness and our ability to bring our heart into it, what I might call self-compassion, um, recognizing difficulty, inclining to support ourselves. Those are the two fundamental pillars um, to begin to wake up and recognize what really matters in our lives. And then we can start kind of angling ourselves in different directions towards, you know, what do I actually want to do in this moment with my life, with myself? How do we make this real for people? Because this idea of a li- being present in every moment, and there, we have moments where we're not happy and we're frustrated at work or we're taking care of a loved one that's going to die any moment. And while those might be sacred moments, we're, we're not feeling happy. How do you – See, this say, could, is yeah, that the – Well, this gets to the definition of happiness. Yes, good. So you're, you're implicit in the way you're talking about it is happiness is a positive emotion, positive feeling. Happiness means feeling good. Which really, my definition of happiness is not, it's not – happiness is not always about feeling good. Happiness is this rock-solid confidence that no matter what comes my way, um, I'm going to be okay. 
And uh, so in other words, there's a natural inbred resiliency. Mm-hmm. And so I can be with someone who's – I'm having a difficult moment right now. I'm, my kid's crying. My, I'm taking care of my, my mom who no longer has, is functional as she used to. I'm at work and someone piled a whole bunch of things on my desk and said I have two hours to do it and I know it's going to take longer. I'm going to be home late, frustration. I'm in traffic. Oh, this is awful, terrible. Our mind's yeah. complaining, whining. <laughs> and so um, what this allows us to do is – so mindfulness being a fundamental pillar is pause – recognize we get caught in something that I call the depression loop. You can also call it the stress loop. It's a conditioned reaction of thoughts, emotions, sensations, and behaviors or actions. So the moment we're caught in that stress reaction Mm -hmm. is a moment we can pause and wake up and recognize that I'm stuck. I'm hooked in something. How do I want to relate to this moment? So happiness is about feeling in control. There's a certain sense of personal control. And so I, instead of um, continuing with this reaction that's causing suffering, I recognize, wow, I'm having a difficult moment right now. This is really hard for me. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that moment, we've named it. So the neuroscience behind that shows that that kind, of, that kind of downregulates the emotional center of our brain. That's kind of firing and brings more blood flow to the prefrontal area, which is more involved with um, emotion regulation and maybe more intentionality. And so then I say, wow, okay, well, I'm, I'm suffering right now. This is really hard for me in this moment, whatever, any moment. We could do this in any moment in life. The moment we name it, we've kind of gained a little perspective on it. And then we say, I'm not the only one that suffers. This happens to me and people in life. What is it that I'm really needing right now? Um, and so then we kind of get to basically it's kind of like, wow, I'm sick you know, in this moment, like when we have a cold what do I really need right now? I need to rest or I need to care for myself. Uh, Being emotionally dysregulated is pretty much the same thing. If we think of it as like the physiology of it where our nervous system is inflamed or where actually our blood flow in our brain is kind of imbalanced at the same time, but the bottom line is we're not feeling well, so we're feeling stuck. What is it that I'm really needing? Am I needing to um, relax my shoulders? Am I needing to um, do a little um, practice such as I'm needing to feel calm. So I say, well, may I feel calm? I'm with my child. I'm with my parent. I'm with my the people on the road. May you feel calm? Because no doubt I'm not alone in this. Mm-hmm. May we all feel calm. And, you know, when doing that, we come out of our own heads, mm-hmm. back into our lives, and we start feeling a little bit better. And so, again, happiness is not about just feeling good. It's about feeling that no matter what comes my way, I can handle it. It's going to be okay. Because when we do that, we can actually give ourselves what we need and rebalance. Mm -hmm. So you're a psychologist. And when I think about depression, I think of it as mock. But you just sort of ruminate in a lot of darkness, rehashing the past, maybe being worried about the future. But just those stories just keep repeating, repeating over and over for you. And I'm curious how, you know, you're talking here about mindfulness-based stress reduction, and people talk a lot about meditation, and I know meditation is such a broad category. For people who really want to learn what you're teaching um, in terms of emotional dysregulation and pausing and being more curious about the feelings and the thoughts that are happening, can they just do any kind of meditation, or how do you learn what you're talking about? Is the question what what meditation should you begin with? Well, are all meditations 
the same. You're a psychologist. You've written the book on uncovering happiness. You've done enormous amount of research on the science and neuroscience. And I'm wondering, for people that are listening, do they need to study mindfulness-based stress reduction or is just learning meditation going to help them? You bring up a really important point. And this is a, a point that people should be aware of when they're engaging any app or any meditation. There's a line between feeling stable and unstable. If someone's feeling really depressed, mm-hmm. um, feeling really stuck, the rumination is like um, it really has a hold on you. Sitting down and practicing a breathing meditation or a body scan or an open awareness practice where you're just aware of all things as they are, you know, these kind of beautiful mindfulness meditations may not really be the place to begin. Um, and when we're really not feeling well, our, our body needs to be engaged usually. We need to be more active. You know, one of the key categories or things that I talk about is the real importance of play. Now, there's a guy who's a leading play researcher, Brian Sutton Smith, who said the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. Mm. And so um, we as adults and even teens and adolescents in this world are oftentimes um, missing this element of doing purposeful or perhaps purposeless activities with things we typically kind of enjoy or find interesting. And so, you know, you and I were kidding before this interview around um, something that, you know, I've learned and like to do while making mistakes sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so in making mistakes, oftentimes one of the things that kicks us into a shame spiral or ignites our depression or feeds it is we sometimes become self-critical, self-judgmental, you know, and instead we can do a 180 degree uh, degree shift like uh, and we can instead celebrate that by lifting our hands over our head and going, woohoo. You know, and in that we're doing a funny little trick, you know, with our brain, which is kind of teaching it that, you know, mistakes are okay. Everybody makes them. It's human. We can celebrate them. In fact, some of the most successful people in the world are people that have have made more mistakes than anybody else. You look at all the athletes out there. The the most successful athletes have missed more shots than anybody else. And Mm -hmm. so basketball, soccer, whatever. And so if we can learn to celebrate our mistakes, be more playful with ourselves, like even in meditation studio – like if people are taking the um, – first of all, a wonderful experiment to do with this app anyways to, is to just be curious about and experiment with the variety of different practices. See what calls out to you. See what you notice. That's bring mind, bringing mindfulness to it. Another thing that speaks to what we're talking about is really the Uncovering Happiness course, and people can kind of go through that. But play is, uh, is a really important thing to just begin to – bring alive in our lives. And mm-hmm. one thing we can do is just think back to our childhood and think, what was play like for me as a kid? Yeah. Yeah. And just think if you can remember those memories and see if visualize them in your mind and see what that does to your body and and see what the, how that might translate into mm-hmm. adulthood. And one caveat, because this is important, if you think back to your childhood and there's no aspect of play, you say, well, that's the issue. I had no play in my childhood, which happens, especially with um, people who have uh, experienced a lot of depression. Um, bring it forward a little bit and mm-hmm, say, okay, mm-hmm. what about adolescence? What about my 20s? Like, you know, where where do I notice play? You know, wherever, bring it forward to wherever the earliest time might be. Mm-hmm. What was that like for me? What were the aspects of it? If I like constructing Legos, you know, is there something about constructing that makes me happy? Yeah. If I like to play outside with my friends, is something about being with people? Is it something about getting my hands dirty outside in nature? Um, and how does that translate into adulthood and start putting that into practice? Yeah. I love that. I love that concept of, of play and um, I think I was listening to a a recording um, for an MBSR course, and someone was saying that the saddest thing she ever heard was one of her students said, 
that she thought there was only one way to do things, that there was only one right way, and that had caused her so much stress her entire life. And I love this idea of, you know, sort of injecting into our children and adults that there's more than one way to do things, that failure is just a beginning and a learning process. And, you know, there's so much to take away from judging about how we do things in life. So I think it's it's really cool that you say play and celebrate a failure. Um, yeah, mistakes. Mistakes, not failure. Oh, but Failure I mean, too, yeah. You yeah. can do that too. Yeah, so start thinking of that differently because it is so stressful to believe that certain things have to be a certain way. I think that really makes for a very rigid. Oh, perfectionism! Population. Perfectionism is the is is the is the clear seed to anxiety thing, and depression. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's really hard, and that's why it's harder to say celebrate my mistakes. What I encourage people who are listening to do is instead literally throw your arms over your head and go woohoo. And even if it doesn't feel right and it feels weird, practice it. it because what you're doing is much like yoga and different things is you're opening your body. Depression, anxiety is a contracted physical thing. Mm -hmm, You're mm -hmm. opening your body. You're actually vocalizing something which kind of, again, brings more – uh, opens up your vocal cords as well. And it's the opposite of what's going on physiologically when you're feeling depressed. It also starts to condition in the mind that mistakes are okay. So even if it doesn't feel right, actually do that physiological mm-hmm. uh, movement and that woohoo. And even if it feels silly or whatever, but yeah. then that's part of the re- that's part of the, <laughs> that's part of it, in fact. Silly is good. Yeah, it feels silly. Um, and, uh, you know, because what you're doing is just kind of playing with it. And there's yeah. so many ways to do that. So, again, ju- not, not just telling yourself to celebrate, but actually doing that. Action, the action of it's important. Well, what I love about what you're saying is that these, these actions, including meditating, really have the ability to change our brains. Totally. Well, that science is bearing that very clearly. Yeah, we can use our minds to change our brains. And we want, we want the kind of change that's implicit. The same kind where you can put your hands on a keyboard and you know exactly – you can type – you know, what a great day without having to think about it. But if I asked you, can you recite to me the middle row of the keyboard? It's very difficult to do because it's that type of information. It's implicit memory and explicit memory. We want the implicit part that happens when you intentionally practice and repeat something Mm -hmm. over time, it starts to become automatic. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, if you practice and repeat certain mindfulness practices um, playing with yourself, engaging self-compassion with yourself. These are things I call natural antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, if you practice and repeat these things over time, um, they'll start to come to you automatically, just like riding a bike. It's called procedural memory. It's memorizing certain procedures. So you're, 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 there's a certain procedure to becoming present. Mm-hmm. There's a certain procedure to recognizing you're having difficulty and inclining to support yourself. There's a certain procedure to playing, being playful in life. And we want to allow that to become automatic because that's what neuroplasticity is. We neurons that fire together wire together. We've heard you might you may or may not have heard that phrase before. Donald Hebb, Canadian psychologist, and you know so what we're doing is we're just kind of creating neural firing so mm-hmm. that we can change things. And once you recognize that they're coming automatically, you know you've changed some neural structure there, and that's the key. What do I have to do? Like, so do I have to meditate 20 minutes a day? Do I, have to, do I have to study something? Do I have to find my own teacher? In addition to listening to these great apps that are out there, what do I do to get to that place? Oh, you got to meet yourself where you're at. And so, you know, what feels right for you? Like for me, remember, my story is I started to just kind of read books. That's what was interesting to me at yeah, first. Yeah. Then I wanted to do a little more. So, you know, what I found in my life, my experience has told me what's key 
is to um, is to find other people, if it's possible, um, who are also you know interested in um, being happier, maybe, or um, practicing you know mindfulness or meditation. That sometimes is difficult, but if you can go on, let's say, the meditation studio or you know whatever, and you can start um, just dipping your toes into listening and being receptive to the practices and then being curious about what you're noticing because you have to kind of go with what's speaking to you. But the key is practice. So remember, you didn't learn how to ride a bike by just getting on once and then kind of you fell and so you gave up. Um, You had to ride it over and over and over again and then it just became automatic. If we give ourselves time each day to pay attention to ourselves, to do something that's caring for ourselves for a concentrated period of time, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you're going to have, um, you're, you're very likely to have good results in stress reduction and feeling happier in life. And so the, whether it's the apps in the meditation studio, play with it, be curious about it, mm-hmm. be open to it. Um, you know, uh, whether it's start off by reading uh, Uncovering Happiness or a variety of other books, yeah. um, get exposed to it, put it in your environment. Um, if you have people that are also interested in it, um, you know, talk to them about it. The more you talk about it, the better. Yeah, that's great. I know you're doing a lot with um, mindful awareness. So you know, there's there's the meditation that we practice in the five minutes a day, or or whatever our particular practice is. How does that help us in relationship with other people? How do we get to that point where we're kinder and yeah? Well, it's a good question, and the answer is it starts with us. And so when we're starting to be kinder towards ourselves, we're going to start naturally being kinder to other people. And, you know, we've heard this line forever. We're our own worst critic. Mm. And so and the reason it's a kind of a cliche line is because it's so true. Yeah, yeah. And so we're so hard on ourselves oftentimes. And so the moment we're that's why the two pillars of uncovering happiness is mindfulness and self-compassion. Mindfulness is the awareness to say, oh, my God, I'm so hard on myself. Self-compassion says, oh. Um, what do I need? What can I do to support myself? And then taking action. Like the Dalai Lama said, it's not enough to be compassionate. You must act. Mm. And so it's not enough to be to recognize I'm being really hard on myself. We must recognize, we must play with understanding what I'm needing right now and starting to give ourselves you know, that in that moment. And as we kind of practice and repeat that over time, that's the kind of stuff that starts uh, becoming automatic. What do you say to people who say that, meditating will take them off their edge and make them maybe mellower or a little more relaxed and maybe not as assertive in a workspace. You know, you hear people talking about that every once in a while. What's your what's your thought on how do we lose our edge or not? Um, sometimes people, if they're practicing it just to be relaxed and calm, they they might be kind of addicted to the hurriedness of their of their mind and like the kind of creativity boost that's happening in their mind and they get they get too calm and at ease and they feel like the tranquility is um you know kind of uh, nullifying things out but really the intention of 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 mindfulness let's say as an example mindfulness meditation is to be aware and so in in awareness you're opening up the pool to all the things that are here and so it enhances your ability to see maybe, maybe creative ideas that are there or the inner genius that resides within. And so I'll just tell you a short practice that, mm-hmm. you know, that comes out of the now effect, which is um, a way of using practice. You know, no matter what practice you're listening to, you can use this, have this intention on how to work with your wandering mind to enhance an awareness of creativity, um, which gives you an edge in my mind. Um, so this is a practice called see, touch, go. And so basically whatever practice you're doing, 
whatever meditation you're doing, your mind's going to wander, just the way the human brain works. And so when it does, um, instead of just bringing it back to whatever the meditation is or the voice in the meditation, allow the voice, if it's an auto-guided one, just to be in the background while, while instead you pay attention for a second to where your mind went. So in other words, touch that thought, spend a moment with it, because um, it could be quite a creative thought or something that you're needing to remember or whatever it is. And so then you take note of that, and then you very gently guide your attention back. Okay, that's a great explanation. Thank you so much for that. The other thing I wanted to ask you before we end is you have a center in L.A. called the Center for Mindful Living. Yeah. And I remember you telling me that, like, one of your goals is to take mindfulness off the cushion, so to speak. One of my one of my passions is I really um, – explore this deeply in uncovering happiness because it's a key moment. It's a key aspect of this is incorporating play and mindfulness yeah, because yeah. Um, mindfulness, the underlying intention of it, and you see this in like in the, that Buddha laughing figure, um, is to be playful and f- have fun. It's not also serious. And so we can do this on the cushion and off the cushion, but we wanted people to start learning mindfulness and having fun at the same time. And so we're integrating um, classes where, and these are all, everyone has to be a trained teacher of mindfulness and also a trained teacher of whatever they're doing. So, you know, classes such as mindful cooking, um, uh, mindful surfing, uh, mindful improv, mindful photography, learning how to see things differently Mm. with perceptions, learning how to find stability on the board, um, learning how to be more present to eating and and the flavors and colors around cooking, and and, um, and also learning how to play and have fun and be flexible with the with the improv. And so this is a, a complete labor of love. And it's a lot of fun. And the classes are selling out. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, people are having just the greatest time. And so it's, I'm like overjoyed by this kind of, and Mindful, Mindful Magazine called this the next level of mindfulness classes. Yeah. I love it. I think it's so great. And if anybody's in LA, they should check out the Center for Mindful Living because oh, yeah. it just sounds like so much fun. I remember Stephen Batchelor said in his interview, he's he's a Buddhist, yeah. and he had said something about he does a lot of photography, but he said meditating before he does any kind of his, you know, any photographic sessions changes the whole nature of what he's photographing. So I love that. Yeah, if we want to talk about, like, what's a natural antidepressant? Um, yeah. In other words, you know, what's a what's a because being being depressed or being anxious or, or suffering in any way is a is a way of disengaging. You, it's not a way. It's a in some ways it could be, but it's an experience of disengagement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we're mindfulness is inherently an engaging thing. It's mm-hmm. an engaging practice. You're engaging the present moment, um, but then you do these things, which are so active at the same time. Integrate the natural antidepressants of mm-hmm. of play and creativity and. Um, so you're getting like a whole concoction, a cocktail of, of to me, really uncovering uh, happiness, the real happiness that's there, that eudaimonic happiness, that yeah. feeling of feeling connected, meaning, sense of meaning and purpose in life. Um, and what fun to be able to do that for ourselves and others. Right, exactly. And it connects us to each other as well. Elisha, thank you so much. You have so much wisdom and so many great insights into meditation and mindfulness practice and happiness. And it's just such a thrill to be here with you. So I'm so grateful. Thank you. For oh, your my time. pleasure. Yeah. yeah. 
Thank you all for listening. I hope you found Elisha compelling, and we look forward to sharing more inspiring stories in our next episode. If you have feedback or suggestions for stories, email us at untangle at And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio by Gaim on the App Store. See you next time.